Welcome to the University of Washington's Political Economy Forum. We bring together diverse scholars, policymakers, and citizens to discuss current public policy issues, to inform the public about them, and to find evidence-based solutions. Feel free to visit our website at uwpoliticaleconomy.com. We publish new episodes of this podcast every week. If you have questions or suggestions for discussion topics, please contact us on Twitter at ForumUW or email us at uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Hello, everyone. My name is Nicholas Wittstock, and in this episode, I speak to Professor Catherine Harold and Professor Asim Prakash. Uh, we speak about the Summit for Democracy that was recently held and how democracy should or maybe should not be advocated for internationally. Catherine Harold is Associate Professor of Public Administration and International Affairs at Syracuse University's Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs. And Asim Prakash is Professor of Political Science at the University of Washington. Hello, Professor Catherine Harold. Hello. And hello, Professor Asim Prakash. Hi there. Nice to have you both on the podcast. Last week, the United States hosted a virtual summit for democracy. And also last week, the two of you published an op-ed in uh, Foreign Policy, where you make the case that when promoting democracy, less is more. And in that piece, you, you make three concrete suggestions uh, about how to reform democratization advocacy, I suppose, abroad. So to start this conversation, what prompted you to, to write this piece? Well, first, thank you so much for having us on the podcast. We're excited to share um, our thoughts and engage in conversation. Um, Asim and I were motivated to write this piece because we feared that the summit would basically be business as usual, that there was no fresh, creative, new thinking or critical thinking going into how the discussion um, or how the summit was framed, who would be invited, et cetera. And we know that democracy promotion, as it has traditionally been framed and implemented, has a very poor track record of bringing about democracy in the target countries. And it's also dangerous for organizations to accept. So we believed that the time was ripe or is ripe, right, to um, adopt a, a new approach. And we laid out some suggestions in the piece. Yeah, I think Katharina's put it very well. So far, since the fall of the Berlin Wall for the last 30 years, democracy promotion has followed a set template mm -hmm. and often inspired by United States or the American experience of consolidation of democracy. So they want elections, they want this, they want this, and which is fine, there's nothing wrong in it. But the problem is when you start recreating America and the rest of the world, which has had very different historical experiences, new problems emerge. And this is probably a reason why democracy promotion has been less than successful. There has been some democracy consolidation, especially in Eastern and Central Europe. The already democracy recession is visible. But by and large, what Catherine and I feel is that the democracy promotion project has run into serious problems. And instead of doing more of the same, I think the idea is to step back and try to understand what exactly is the end point, what's the end objective that we seek to achieve from this exercise, and are there alternative ways to mm -hmm. get to the same objective instead of just following the same template? That makes a lot of sense. At this point, 
in 2021, when the U.S. starts um, inviting people for the summit, what, what does democracy even stand for internationally? People were debating this around this uh, summit, especially specifically with uh, the notion that there might be, you know, like a new development uh, or, or societal model or something like that emanating from China. But, um, you know, is, is democracy still associated with economic success? Is democracy still associated with competent government internationally? W what is your take here? My take is that the meaning of democracy is indeed up for debate. Mm -hmm. um, that the values of, I would say, American democracy, political freedom, social justice, equality of economic opportunity, are embraced and demanded around the world by citizens. But we do see China using the term democracy, suggesting that it, even in its very authoritarian um, approach to governance, has a new, more relevant form of democracy for today's world. So my sense is that the, when we see citizens in the streets, protesting for democracy or working to bring about democracy in more inconspicuous ways, most are rallying around those values of freedom, justice, and equality of opportunity. But that what that means institutionally and what that means in practice is still very much um, up for debate. Yeah, to continue on that point, Catherine's point, I think there is utter confusion on what is democracy and why we want democracy. What do we expect from democracy? So what is democracy? One could say government of the people, for the people, by the people, and that sounds lovely. But in America, a lot of people are saying that the government doesn't work for them. The government is being captured. And the serious issues about voting rights, so whether it's really by the people. So I think even in this, the shining light of democracy called United States of America, Americans are questioning, do we really have a democracy? So I think we have to be very clear what we mean by democracy. Does it mean elections with election monitors? And then we declare there's a democracy or is democracy more a process? You know, that's what Catherine and I are trying to argue. The democracy is essentially trying to foster pluralism, multiple voices, acceptance of diversity, creating equal opportunities for everybody. So it may or may not have the level of democracy. It may not go through a regular four-year or five-year election cycle with an independent election commission. It may have you know, different ways of aggregating and understanding citizen preferences. So we have to be open to understanding what do people think is the best way to institutionalize pluralism, to allow, to create a space for multiple voices, which may sometimes be in conflict. That's again an important feature of democracy. And the second is, okay, suppose we do have this regular elections, competitive elections, change of government. What do we want at the end of the day? Do we want economic growth? Do we want economic equality? What exactly is the end product? And China's continued economic success poses a very serious challenge to the American or the Western model of democracy because China is delivering economic growth. It has a reasonably high level of internal cohesion. And for good or for bad, it doesn't seem to be as chaotic the way American system seems to be working. January 6th is of course one example but you know, the rising crime wave, the general level of dissatisfaction with the status quo. China is not experiencing this kind of internal chaos. So it's important that all of us step back and first of all, try to understand 
the varieties of democracies as local people define it, not fancy academics sitting in universities talking about varieties of democracy. And what do people want in terms of their own governance systems? What is their vision? And that is the way, in our opinion, Catherine and my opinion, to proceed forward instead of coming up with universal template, tick, check, 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 check your democracy. That doesn't help. Indeed, I would like to just jump in here and, and um, emphasize Asim's point that elections are not the sine qua non of democracy. Um, in much of the world, elections are irrelevant. Um, elections often take place even in non-democratic context, but they're not free, they're not fair. What citizens are looking for is empowerment, the ability to engage, to have control over their and their communities and their society's futures, but also security, economic prosperity. In my research in the Global South, so many times I've encountered everyday people who in theory value freedoms, but also indicate that, you know, under their current autocratic governments, at least a safe and secure and economically prosperous or relatively prosperous quality of life ensues. I'll never forget one of my students in one of my courses where we were debating, what does democracy mean? What is the goodness of democracy? Um, she's from Palestine. And she said, you know, we don't have democracy in Palestine, but we also don't have, don't allow our homeless people to live on the streets. And my class is mostly Americans. It was silent thinking about that. It seems to me that you're suggesting that for some countries, there may be something like a wealth uh, versus rights trade-off and explicitly, right? Like, well, we may not have democracy, but at least, you know, we're taking care of the people that um, fall through the cracks in the system. And um, I think China is very strongly uh, appears to me trying to push this idea that, oh, you can either have all these things that sound good, or you can actually have a, a, a warm and sheltered place to sleep and a job to go to in the morning. Um, but but why is it, why would that uh, be a trade-off? Why can't you have both? Or why, why, why is this a trade-off? Why would it be? I don't think Catherine suggested a trade-off. I think the argument is that we assume that democracy, free elections are an end goal by themselves. And the question Catherine and I are posing is, okay, suppose you have free and fair elections or you don't mm -hmm. have free and fair elections. What exactly are you trying to achieve? Mm -hmm. And what we are trying to achieve or what any society is trying to achieve is economic prosperity for all, some level of security, a level of honesty in the government, everyday people trying to live honestly, going about their activities, unhampered, unencumbered by bullying, etc., etc. So the example she gave is that there are societies which technically may not be classified as democracies, but they're doing quite well on some other things, such as taking care of the homeless. So for example, in India, there is a state called Punjab, where the dominant religion is Sikh, and you never find a Sikh beggar, mm. because they have a very strong ethic that nobody from our community should be allowed to beg. So in their temples, which is called Gurudwaras, they have communal kitchen called Langar, and anybody, whether you're a Sikh or a non-Sikh, can go and eat there. So that's how they take care of the hunger problem. So essentially, I think the issue is to understand what is the community level responses to societal challenges? It may take place through democracy. People may have elections and they may choose to do so, 
And they might think that's the best way to distill public preferences to create local cohesion, and, and that's okay. Catherine and I are not say, making a case that we should have the Chinese model everywhere. I think the point we're trying to make is there has to be institutional heterogeneity and let people decide what's the way to foster pluralism. Instead of coming from Washington, having a democracy summit, the Washington consensus do this, 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 and you live happily ever after. So that's the kind of you know, universal templates that Catherine and I are questioning. I agree. I, I forgive me if I if I frame this as a as an either or or a dichotomy. No, no, no. no. Sorry. I'm, I'm just trying to be controversial for the sake of conversation. I wasn't trying to suggest that you're <laughs> no, advertising think, the Chinese model here. Look, Nicholas, you're right. You know, some people are saying that let's go for authoritarianism. Yeah. The democracy creates chaos. And we don't subscribe to that. Uh-huh. So we don't subscribe to universal templates. And I think the idea is let the hundred flowers bloom. Because the world is sufficiently complex. Increasingly, we are realizing that. There's mm. no end of history here. There are multiple histories. And we have to negotiate that with a lot of thought. And that is something that seems to be lacking. We are yeah. you know, kind of, we want universal models, quick solutions. And unfortunately, there are no universal models. And the quick solutions are often very difficult and sometimes dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. Indeed, let me also emphasize that um, if I suggested a dichotomy, that was um, that was a a, a poor phrasing on my part. Um, Neither the China model nor the American model should be held up as the model is indeed what Asim and I are arguing. Um, Instead, can we think about democracy as um, a, a plurality of individuals with different viewpoints coming together to build their own futures. Yeah, so I wanted to come back to that because that's your first recommendation in your piece, right? Where you effectively call for a reframing of this whole idea of, of what what is supposed to be promoted, focusing on, on pluralism. But what, what exactly do you mean when you say uh, promoting pluralism in the way that you've just discussed it uh, right now as well? Pluralism, in our opinion, means an acceptance of multiple perspectives, a process of debate, a process of dialectics, where different perspectives get debated, and eventually a common solution emerges. It could be through a town hall, it could be through a citizen council, it could be through elections, it could be through other ways of preference aggregation. And that is an end in itself. No. Yes. A- yes. Well, well, <laughs> I would argue that the process, process the process it? of that, uh-huh. yes, is is as or more important than the ultimate configuration. Um, but that 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 process is is what is really key here, mm-hmm. and that the U.S. role is to step back and and to the extent that it has the legitimacy to do so support citizens in creating and building that platform for discussion, for debate, for collective problem solving, rather than funding institutional contractors, international NGOs to to swoop into a target country and school citizens and governments on how to construct a procedural form of democracy in the US's vision. Democracy cannot be constructed by consultants Mm -hmm. sitting in Washington, D.C. And I think that's something Catherine and I in our own work, 
In fact, Catherine's recent book, Delta Democracy, won an award. I think it's, it's important to understand that things like civil society, which is now celebrated as an essential pillar of democracy, but how do you construct civil society? I think now the assumption is that if you throw enough money, you'll buy civil society. Mm -hmm. And we fail to understand that different societies have different ways of organizing this civic space. Mm. And some of them may not be flashy. They may not be using the right jargon, the right lingo. Yet, they are trying to create local public goods, solve local problems in their own different ways. And we have to respect that. And some of them may have religious characters. Some of them may not have religious character. The idea is that there are different ways to pursuing local level pluralism to solve local problems. And yeah, in, sometimes the process itself is very important. So for example, if you think the US election process, the presidential process, of course we have the primaries and the general election. For me, the most symbolic is that the president takes oath and the outgoing president shakes the hand and there's a peaceful transfer of power. I think that is probably in my opinion, the most beautiful moment of the process. Because it's so that, you know, there was a contest of ideas. One individual won, another individual lost. And we transfer the power for the next four years. And then we'll have another contest to see whose ideas matter. So sometimes process is very important. Whether it's an end unto itself or not, I think, you know, it's up for debate. But the point Catherine and I are trying to make is that you have these democracy summits, different countries, are invited, there's a lot of chest thumping, you announce hundreds of millions of dollars of grants, both US and EU have announced and which is okay. But sometimes these things can backfire. Announcing more funding for international NGOs, I think it's up for debate, whether it's helping the cause of democracy or whether it's hurting the cause of democracy. Again, we're not making any categorical statement. It varies from context to context. Sometimes NGOs do fantastic work, but sometimes they don't. And as scholars and practitioners, we have to be mindful of this nuance because it's very critical for the lives of the people who are actually impacted by Washington or Brussels declarations. Yeah, so that, that being the second point that you're making in, in, in your piece, where you're effectively arguing that, and you've brought this up multiple times now as well in this conversation, that we need to get away from, from Western donor-dependent international NGOs. Catherine, could you elaborate on why that is so important to achieve what you're describing here? Sure, the international NGO system has become a lucrative industry. And what we witness are international NGOs and also large professionalized domestic NGOs in, in so-called target countries becoming or even existing as very managerial organizations that employ highly paid, highly trained professionals to carry out short-term projects that have been designed in Washington, D.C. or in Brussels or, you know, wherever the, 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 the funding government headquarters are located, to carry out these projects, report back with measurable outputs to home governments, and continue the process over and over, which becomes, at the end of the day, not an exercise in supporting local democracy building, but rather an exercise in organizational sustainability it creates organizations that are much more upwardly accountable to donors than downwardly accountable to citizens. 
Rarely do funds for so-called democracy promotion flow to local organizations. And, and when they do, they tend to flow to the most professional ones that are located in capital cities that are relatively out of touch with local populations. And we argue that this is no way to promote democracy. Asim, do you have anything to add to this issue of NGOs? Yeah, I think Catherine and I, the argument has been, and this is an argument that actually extends to the whole foreign aid industry, that the assumption has been if you throw enough money, the problem will be solved. Mm-hmm. And if throwing money would solve problems, the world would have been a very different place. And what we are suggesting is that not only are these international NGOs many times ineffective, they also undermine local efforts, what we call the process of NGOization, that these professional managerial NGOs with connections to the West, many of their leaders who've gotten training at master's level at professional schools in the US and other places who talk the lingo, who talk about performance management, common metric. So these are the people who are dominating the discourse. And this is where the money tends to get directed and diverted. And the local people, the local organizations, which don't speak English, which don't have the lingo, which don't know how to use the right terms, they get kind of crowded out. So in a sense, we have planted what we call grass without roots. So these are not the real grassroots. And civil society, which is a core pillar of democracy promotion, is supposed to be a channel for kind of distilling and mobilizing local preferences. But how do these professional city-based organizations having workshops in fancy hotels, how are they going to be representing local people? They have got very little connection to local people. And there have been actually a lot of articles, not only about NGOs, but about the international organizations. They go to a particular city, the rents go up, the business of fancy restaurants go up, the demand for Range Rovers goes up and so on and so forth. So these are very elite lifestyles. And again, we might be happy that we have allocated $400 million for democracy promotion. But at the end of the day, we have to ask, has it really promoted democracy? Has it really promoted pluralism? Has it really increased the local engagement with self-governance? And I think these are the kind of issues we ought to be asking. And to follow up on that, how do we support, and, and, and Asim and I, allude to this in our piece, and I alluded it, uh, to it earlier, but how do we support the true grassroots? Because what we are seeing around the world are youth, including the so-called elites, rejecting the NGOization of civil society, pushing back and creating new voluntary organizations, working on or, or conducting seemingly benign activities, but mobilizing large groups of people around common interests and problem solving in ways that are inherently very political and very much about quote unquote democracy, but very much about building pluralism. That is really interesting. So the third point you bring up is that it's important going forward to respect institutional heterogeneity, meaning that, and you made this point earlier, right, that regional institutions that are based on, that, that are truly organic, truly uh, sort of grassroots um, movements that create institutions that work for the regional context, um, that should be accepted rather than to, as you said, going in with a Western playbook and in implementing some sort of uh, thing that, that makes sense to someone who sits thousands of miles away. That seems extremely sensible to me. 
But do you have some examples of the kinds of institutions that you would that, that would fall under this category? How do people in in different areas govern themselves in a way that does respect pluralism but doesn't really conform to the to the Western notion of democracy? Well, we do see so-called participatory democracy schemes in South America. They're particularly common. Um, we see participatory development programs that international donors are increasingly supporting, which we could argue that while that is focused on so-called development, it is still all about pluralism and civic empowerment if it is truly participatory. The trouble with these programs, Nicholas, is that often they are still designed from the top down, whether that's international donors or whether that is home countries, right? Participatory democracy schemes. Um, Uh, created by created by home gover governments and don't really shift the power for decision making to local yeah. citizens. Um, I will say that to your point about well, are there examples and and not only existing examples of this, but existing examples of of how the U.S. Um, or other Western donors um, can can support this? Mm. Something very promising that we've seen from. US, the U.S. Agency for International Development, or USAID, um, is current administrator um, Samantha Powers' commitments to increasing not only funds for locally-led development initiatives, that is, initiatives that are initiatives in which the agenda, the priorities, are identified by local citizens, um, programming activities you know this all sounds very technical but it often it, it's not nearly as technical as even these terms are sounding um but activities are implemented by community members and then local people are figuring out um or coming up with creative ideas for how to measure quote unquote success um in any case uh administrator power has um, doubled down on USAID funding for this work, although it remains a fraction of the agency's budget. But what I would argue that is far more important than any funding is a commitment by the agency to have local voices leading priorities programming in 50% of the agency's programming. Now, again, it's only half but it's still a significant improvement over where we've been in the past. The question I think is whether this is, is whether and, and how this is actually implemented because the, the theme of localization has been um, touted in the agency for decades now. And so the question is, well, how does it actually play out? Nicholas, the huge corpus of work associated with Elena Rostrum is talking about community level solutions to local problems. And the notion of commons has been extended beyond environmental issues to several other issues. So I think there are lots of rich studies and you know, a completely new stream of scholars that are looking at how local people are organizing locally to address local problems. So again, you know, it's not that local is always the best and what exactly is local, how local is local. So those are Good questions to ask. What exactly is a community? Where do you draw the line? There is always a problem of in-group and out-group. Sometimes communities can be very autocratic. So again, we are not saying this is the universal solution. 
there are no universal solutions. If there is one universal law, that is that there is no universal law. So let there be a process of experimentation, institutional experimentation. We will make mistakes. Everybody will make mistakes, but we learn from it. All right. This is far superior to coming with a universal template backed by big donor funds and saying, do this, 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 and now we declare you to be democracy. Mm -hmm. It has worked. For example, in EU, if you want to join EU, these are 25, 30 areas where you have to update your laws. You have to do this, you do this, there's a checklist and it has worked because there is a sufficient incentive. So again, we are not saying these checklists don't work, but starting with the assumption that the only way to promote something called democracy is through these checklists and universal templates backed by donor funding and heavy presence of NGOs, that will create problems as it has in the last 30 years. Also creates the problem that um, it's going to be a little bit complicated to evaluate to what extent we see or how, how to know uh, when there is success when we see it. Right? Like, um, how do we know that these things are actually working? And um, is there are there any non-negotiables that should still exist on, on, on some level? I don't want to be uh, provocative just for the sake of it, but I mean, there, there is an issue of democratic backsliding in a, lot of, in a lot of places, right? Maybe those aren't necessarily the countries that you're most interested in with your argument here, right? But at the same time, are there certain um, lines that you would say are still uh, sacrosanct that where you say, well, I don't really I don't really care what your local semi-open inclusive deliberation comes up with. If, if you um, engage in certain solutions to your local problems, we're not going to be accepting that internationally. To me, there's room for both, mm -hmm. right? To be to be to draw a hard line with abuses, with government abuses, right. but to recognize that often in those states, there are, um, and to recognize and to support that in many of those states, probably all, there is, is local citizen-led democracy building going on, sometimes covertly, sometimes surreptitiously, sometimes not intentionally, but that this can be supported at the same time that we draw a hard line. On government abuse. Yeah, it's again, you know, are there any lines that should not be crossed the issues? Who decides what these lines are? This becomes hugely problematic. So, you know, in the context of European Union, the European community has decided what are the appropriate lines for them. Mm -hmm. And if anybody wants to join that community, these are the things they have to do. And, you know, we have to respect. Mm -hmm. It's a regional solution to what they consider to be a regional problem. Mm -hmm. And, you know, countries have a choice. But at the universal level, saying that this is totally unacceptable, you know, three of us in US universities may have a certain conception about, say, gender rights. And we might say certain things are totally unacceptable. And in the US context, they are unacceptable. Et cetera, et cetera. You know, we believe in complete equality of men and women and non binaries. So I think, but this may not be acceptable in other countries. And this becomes a very, it's a moral issue apart from a political issue. To what extent privileged people in the West have should have the power to impose their perspectives on others? And I don't think I have a, a, a very clear answer to this. I'm very conflicted. So there is a you know, universal declaration of human rights. A lot of countries have signed on to it. But a lot of these declarations really mean nothing at the grassroots level. Mm. And of course, the uneven implementation and enforcement so I think this is these are the kind of questions we need to debate that are there limits to pluralism. 
what are the scope conditions? Are certain things completely unacceptable? So after World War II, the world decided that genocide, these kinds of you know, mass campaigns targeted at particular communities are completely unacceptable. And that was the right thing to do. The world was reacting with horror to uh, a terrible event in, in, in human history. So I think we have to be respectful that the world may come together and say, this is the red line and this will not be crossed like chemical weapons, biological weapons and so on and so forth. And at other times there may be not red lines, there may be purple lines or the lines that locally are drawn. And we can't come up with a checklist. I think these are the things that have to be debated. And this is what Catherine and I are saying. We are not saying everything is okay. Everything goes. No, everything doesn't go. Everything is not okay. But this has to be debated, not dictated. And now it is dictation instead of debate. The debate has is to happen on the, at the local level where, where it's context relevant. Context relevant well, sometimes. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, I think it happened. It has to happen at all levels. Mm -hmm. To illustrate this point, I recall back in 2000, early 2012, after um, about a year after the, the 2011 Arab Spring uprisings in Egypt, I was speaking with the country director. Um, so this person was Western and was the director of their, of the donors, the Western donors, Egypt office. And she said, you know, I think that our funding has been useless. Our support for civil society not only did not cause the revolution, but in fact is an agenda that was not asked for by the people. And she specifically referred to female genital mutilation. Yeah. She said that we as a donor agency reject this, but that doesn't resonate always with local communities. And that just brings up this very naughty issue of, of what is acceptable and what is not acceptable and by whom. Catherine, Asim, thanks so much for being part of the podcast. Thank you for having us over. Thank you for having us. It was a pleasure. And um, we look forward to uh, continuing to debate, these, to debate these ideas and see to what extent they resonate in Washington. Thank you for listening to the Political Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like our special podcast on election security, Neither Free Nor Fair, which is hosted by Professor James Long and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by Morgan Wack and myself, Nicholas Vichduck. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Thank you.